Hey, my name is Colton. I'm one of the serving leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope that you can lean in and enjoy this message. Today we are in week four of a series that we are studying through uh, as we're studying through the book of Galatians, which is a book kind of smack dab in the middle of the New Testament, the newer portion of our Bible. And this series is actually leading us into Easter. Kind of hard to believe that we are just three weeks away from Easter. Can you believe that? Some of you are like... Yeah, bro, I looked at the calendar the other day, and I just, yeah, I just counted the days. But anyway, and, and as a result of that, we, we did create a, a link on our website. We do this for kind of different events that, that are going on here, and, and we create this because the reality is, is that whenever you're stepping into a church for the very first time, it can be really intimidating, super awkward, and so our hope is that some of the FAQs on this website, as well as some of the other information, will just help alleviate some of that anxiety that we all often feel when we step into a new environment, and so church, you can use this this link, send it to your friends when you're inviting them to Easter, or even feel free to kind of peruse that yourself and kind of see what to expect on that day. There's also some digital invites that are available to you on that website, as well as so you can use those to kind of share on social media. And then the day before Easter, as Daryl mentioned a moment ago in Ethos News, we have our extra special Easter egg hunt. And just briefly, I hope that we understand, the best that we understand, um, we don't know of any other special needs or kind of Easter celebrations for kiddos and families families with special needs in our community or kind of around our area. And so our hope is on that day, this is the second year that we're doing this, and, and we just continue to pray that this would be an annual tradition for us. Our hope would be that families will get to celebrate Easter in the unique ways that so many of you have with your kids over the years as well. And so if you'd like to serve on that Saturday as well, we want to invite you to participate. I promise that you will actually get more out of that day serving than what you will be able to give that day. It is such a joy. It's so much fun. And so you can join us on that Saturday. In addition, I want to say thank you so much to so many of you who just give regularly. It's because of your giving and generosity that we're able to do things like this for families who um, you know, just often don't get to experience some of the same joys that you get to experience in the same way with, with your kiddos. And so it's a fantastic Saturday. I hope that you can, you can join us on that Saturday as well. Well, today I want to share from a, from a title as we lean into week four of this series. I want to speak from a working title of How the Gospel Builds a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Family. Now, if you're a little bit newer to church, or maybe you're kind of skeptical about God in general and have some doubts about this whole church thing, this is one of those messages. This is one of those this is one of those beliefs in one sense that we see in the scriptures that's intended to be one of the most attractive and beautiful characteristics of the church, of Christ's body. But too often it's misunderstood, maybe not even understood at all, or just dismissed entirely. And so today I hope that if you are newer, we can kind of pull back the curtain just a little bit and you can see what maybe the church has kind of been missing out on. And for the rest of us who are followers of Christ, I, I pray that this morning would sort of just kind of breathe a fresh wind into our sails, so to speak, and, and, and just allow each of us to really pursue what it looks like to be a united family under the name of Jesus. How many of y'all uh, recently, maybe even in the last year or so, have started to enjoy some pickleball? Can I see your hands? It's kind of like the thing right now. There's quite a few of you, a little bit less than first service, but nevertheless, so quite a few of you. I've recently taken on this hobby of pickleball as well. And what's interesting about pickleball is like anybody can play it. Even though anybody can play it, there are still some times where I step into the pickleball court and I'm like, I'm going to crush you. You're like a little bit older than me, probably not as athletic, and I'm totally judging them in this moment. 
But what's interesting about pickleball, though, is like, He's like, I'm getting crushed every time that I play. I'm so bad at pickleball, but every time I play, I'm like, I should be winning right now. There's all sorts of unique rules in pickleball, though, and, and it's partially because of the rules that make me not good at the game. It's all the rules' fault. It has nothing to do with my skill. It's all the rules' fault. But there's this one unique rule in pickleball, and it's, it's the idea that you can't step into the kitchen. Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, no worries. But the kitchen is frustrating. And for me, I often step into the kitchen, and whoever I play, is like, uh, Jordan, hey, you stepped in the kitchen again, and so now that point is disqualified. It's actually my ball, my serve. And I'm like, I don't understand the whole kitchen rule. It doesn't look like a kitchen. There's no appliances. There's no food in the kitchen. Why are we calling this the kitchen? Can we just play with no kitchen, please? The kitchen has confused me numerous times as I've been playing pickleball. And recently, I was thinking about pickleball in the Bible. This is a true story. This is where my mind goes sometimes. And, and I, it dawned on me, like, like, my confusion with the kitchen and pickleball is a lot like my confusion sometimes with, with the Bible. In fact, if you've ever been confused by the Bible before, if you ever read it or heard it taught, and you're like, man, I just, I just don't seem to really understand what's taking place here. You're in good company. In fact, the whole reason why the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this book of Galatians, that wrote this letter to the region of Galatia that was a collection of several churches that would, for today, be like modern-day Turkey for us. The reason why he wrote this letter was to alleviate some of the confusion that the churches of the day had. People were all sorts of confused. They're like, man, I think I've heard the message of the gospel, but now I'm confused because other people are teaching the gospel in a manner, in a way that doesn't seem to come into alignment with what I first heard, what I was first taught. In fact, even for us today, 2,000 years later, we've heard this word gospel over and over again, especially if you have any sort of relationship with the church as a child. You've heard this so many times it's often like yeah but what really is it and that's what this book is that's what this book is all about and first and foremost it's helpful to see as we lean into the fourth chapter today of Galatians and begin to kind of wrap this series up as we lean into Easter, it's helpful to identify that there are really kind of four types of people that even throughout the book of Galatians, Paul, the author, is referencing. The first group of people are the law-obeying, law-relying group of people. Now, I want to encourage us for just a moment to identify where would we be in these four groups of people because the heart of the gospel and the heart of what Paul, the author, is trying to declare to us is actually helping us to, to kind of identify if we maybe be in the first, second, or third group and he's hoping that we would get to the fourth group that we'll identify here in just a moment. This first group, law-obeying, law-relying. These are people who are usually seen as very religious people, but they're also a bit smug, maybe even self-righteous and kind of view themselves as a bit superior, these would be like modern-day Pharisees for us. Now, externally, they reveal, or at least they want others to believe that they are right with God. They want everybody to see their righteousness in one sense and to know that, man, like, you are something special. But inside, they've got a lot of insecurity because they realize, though, that they're not fully living up to the standard because nobody can fully live up to the standard. And as a result, though, this makes them a bit touchy, even sensitive to criticism, because if anybody criticizes them, they feel like it's an indictment on their attempt to be seen as righteous. And so as a result, they're like, no, man, they kind of shirk all responsibility. In fact, these are people who are really quick to point out sins in others, but very slow to identify it in themselves. These are also folks who have a really hard time 
when their prayers aren't answered because they feel like, man, everything I do was just right. So why aren't my prayers being answered? Now, the second group of people that Paul identifies in this book of Galatians and all throughout the New Testament are the law disobeying, but law relying. Now, these are folks that I would say probably fills a lot of even our church today. These are individuals who have a religious conscience, a strong works righteousness, meaning they work really hard to be made right, to do the right thing, so to speak, but they know, that they're aware that they're not living consistently with it. And as a result, they're usually a lot more humble than the first group, a lot more tolerant even than others, but they're, they've got a lot of guilt. They carry with them a lot of shame. They're also, they're, also, they're also subject to quick mood swings because when things are going good and they feel like they're living up to the standard, they're really happy. But when they're not, they feel really depressed. In fact, these are folks who often, when they make a mistake, they feel like they can't come back to church because they don't want to be around all of the quote-unquote religious people who are just going to point out their sin. I meet with these types of people all of the time. And I often find myself trying to convince them, no, no, there's grace. You're carrying shame and bondage that you don't need to carry. In fact, I just want to encourage us, even as a church, as a family, may we be those types of people who pull in other people when we see them maybe falling away from the community of faith, not even for good reason. It's just because they don't feel like they're worthy to be a part of it anymore. They feel like they need to kind of work their way back into right standing, not even just with God, but even with other, other Christ followers. May we be those who reach out to those, to those people. Now, the third group of people are the law disobeying, but not law relying. Now, these are folks who have kind of thrown off the concept of God entirely. They're kind of intellectually secular or relativistic, which just means that they view there to be no, no objective truth, no, no real right or wrong. In fact, what's interesting, though, is that these people are usually happier and more tolerant than the above group of people. And it's for that reason why a lot of folks, even today, in particular kind of with the emerging generation, they find themselves deconstructing their faith because they see their friends over here living completely opposite of what maybe they've been taught previously they ought to live. And they see me like, you're happier than me. You don't carry the same shame that I carry. You don't carry the same guilt. You seem to be a lot more tolerant of other people than what the people at my church are. And as a result, I think I just want to go do what you're doing because it seems a whole lot easier and a lot more, a lot more fun. But what's interesting, though, about this group, too, that there is kind of a strong secular self-righteousness that they carry because they themselves determine what's good and what's bad, what's right, wrong, what's good and what's evil, and as a result, they're living up to their proverbial idea of what's good, and so they're trying to now earn their salvation by just doing what they consider to be good. And oftentimes, they even then feel superior to others, but it's a less obvious sense of self-righteousness. Now, the fourth group of people, and this is what Paul in Galatians is encouraging of us. He's saying, may we transition from either one of these categories of people and may we become more like the law obeying but not law relying. And these are those Christians who understand the gospel and they're living out from a place of freedom as a result of their trust in Christ. Now they obey the law of God. They want to please God, but they do so out of grateful joy that comes from the knowledge of their completion as a result of trusting in Jesus, not their own works, not their own behavior. Now these folks are far more sympathetic than the first group 
They're a whole lot more confident than the second, and they're actually a whole lot more loving than the third. But the key here isn't law-keeping or law-breaking. The key here is law-relying. What are you, what am I, what are we relying on for our sense of completion? As we mentioned last week, Paul writes in the very beginning of chapter three of Galatians, he says, after starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? That phrase, become perfect, comes from one Greek word. It's the word epitelio, which in our English language can be translated as completion, finish, or to bring something to pass. What Paul is saying is that to believe in Christ is to enact a revolution of sorts in what we trust for our sense of epitelio, for our sense of completion or being perfect. In other words, we've all done this before. If you've ever said something to the effect, like if I can just achieve that, if I can just get that promotion, if I can just make that much money, if I can just have this many zeros in my bank account, or if I can have this many letters beside my name or be accepted by that group of people, or if I can just at the end of my life, look back on my life and say, I made a difference, then I will feel like I'm complete. Then I'll feel like I brought something to pass. I'll feel like I've become a bit more perfect. But you know what that is? That is a pseudo sense of salvation. It's a false righteousness or a temporary righteousness. My son, Judah, who gives me a ton of great sermon illustrations, that's the only reason we still have them, but <laughs> jokes, jokes, relax, okay? Just a joke. But Judah, for Christmas, he got a lot of really cool gifts, and he's such a sweet kid. He's actually, he's so kind, and he's really grateful, but there was a sense in which, as he's opening these presents, like, he's not really getting what he really wanted, and my wife and I are like, like, he's happy, but he's sort of like faking this happiness, and every new gift he's opening, there's this sense in which he's hoping to open something that we don't know what it is. We're like, did we miss something this Christmas? And later on that evening, he's opening some presents from his grandparents and aunts and uncles, and, and finally he got what he was really wanting, and it was a $25 gift card for Roblox. <laughs> now, if you know, you know, and if you don't, you're better for it. But he spends his $25 gift card that night online as he's playing his Roblox video game, upgrading his character or something like that. And the next day, he comes to me and he says, hey, Dad, can I get another Roblox gift card? I said, son, you literally haven't even opened all of your presents yet. I don't think so, buddy. And he's like, oh, that's really all I wanted. And he goes, and he goes, can I add that to my birthday list, please? I was like, sure, but six months from now, we'll put that on your birthday list, right? <laughs> it's funny, though, because what Judah was experiencing is a lot of what we experience just on maybe a more adult level. The sense in which I got what I wanted, but not too long after, I no longer feel complete like I once felt when I first received it. And it's here at the end of Galatians chapter three and the beginning of chapter four that we lean into this morning where Paul puts an exclamation point on this idea of completion. In fact, in Galatians three verse 26, Paul says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Can anybody say all? All. He goes on, he says, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Male or female, 
for you are all now one in Christ Jesus. In fact, the heart of all of our Christian life is found right here in verse 26. For you are all children of God. You're all children, sons, daughters of God. In other words, what Paul is saying here demonstratively and emphatically is that you're not trying to attain sonship. You're not trying to make yourself a child. It's not something in the future. It's something that we already are in the present state. My kids are my kids. No matter how hard they try or don't try to be, it wouldn't matter. They're always going to be my kids. Nothing can change that. Now, catch this though, because this is very different than being made in the image of God. That's something that all of humanity has in common. All people are made in the image of God. Different message, different day. This right here, though, is not talking about universal sonship. It's a much deeper kind of relationship. And it comes through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. In fact, it's right here where Paul is so brilliantly and perfectly saying, we got to get this right here, that Christianity, Jesus Christ, is unbelievably inclusive. It's available for all people. And yet, in the very same breath, Paul is saying, it's also really exclusive in that it's only available to those who put their faith in Christ and in Christ alone. It can't be done any other way. There's no other way up the mountain, and there's no other person who can give to us this completion that all of our hearts and the deepest desires of our soul truly long for. In fact, what Paul is really saying here is that we are only his sons when we have faith in the Son, which is super corny. I know that's like a pastor preacherism right there if you've ever seen one, but it's true. And hopefully it's the way in which we can remember this as well. But now here's where it gets even more interesting. And what I'm gonna share next, not everybody needs to hear this and I understand that, but there are some of us who I pray that this is really encouraging for. See, in the original language here of Galatians 3, it actually says that for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, a moment ago, we read from the New Living Translation. This is written from the English, from the English Standard Version. But, but in, in modern translations, it's always translated as, as children. But in the original language, it's, it's actually very specifically and intentionally saying sons. Now, a lot of people historically have actually taken offense at the fact that the Bible was using this masculine word sons to refer to all Christians in fact, that's the reason why in some more modern translations like the New Living Translation or the NIV of which I read out of every morning during my kind of first 15 and just daily devotion time, they're great translations. And yet sometimes these modern translations have actually excluded some of the original language simply because it's less offensive and it's easier to understand some of the ways in which it's been modernly written and it is. And so I'm not dismissing that, nor am I saying that we shouldn't read from those translations, but I do want us to get this real quick. Because if we are too quick to correct the biblical language, we actually miss out on the revolutionary and radically egalitarian ways in which Paul is communicating his message here in Ephesians or in Galatians 3. See, in most ancient cultures and still today in the Middle East, daughters, women could not inherit property. They were seen as inferior to their brothers, regardless of whether they were older or younger than their, than their brothers. Therefore, the word son or the term son or the identification son meant legal heir, legal heir to that which their dad was going to leave to them, to the possessions, to the inheritance of their father, of their family. But that status was forbidden to women. 
But what Paul is saying and what Jesus declared and what Paul further emphasizes in the New Testament is that the gospel tells us that we are all sons of God in Christ, that we are all heirs to the same inheritance, to the same legal rights that my older brother or my younger brother are given as well. Now, similarly, the Bible characterizes and describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ. And so throughout the scriptures, God is very even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. But my point here is that if we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we actually miss out on just how radical and wonderful and beautiful this claim really is. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 27 of Galatians 3, and he kind of further makes this point. He says, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where Paul gets brilliant. And these scriptures right here, just two verses, are jam-packed with theological implications and applications for our lives, of which we do not have time to explore today, which is really hard for me not to just take the next hour and a half and like dive into all of this, but y'all would fall asleep and because March Madness and all of that stuff. And so, but, but so there's just a few things I want us to share here, but just understand that what Paul is saying here is unbelievably radical, not just in the first century, but still so today. Day. Specifically, Paul is addressing the three barriers that often divide people. Not just then, but still divide people today. He's saying that the first barrier is the cultural barrier. That the gospel actually divides this cultural barrier. Specifically, the way that Paul describes it, he says there's no longer now Jew or Gentile. In other words, people of one culture do not need to become like another culture in order to be accepted. Because that's exactly what was happening at the church in Galatia, in that region there, modern-day Turkey. People were saying, okay, I know that like, you're a Gentile, and I know that like, you live your life this way, but if you really want to experience salvation, completion in Christ, you've got to do it this way. You've got to take on my culture, my tradition, my way of doing and being, because this is what's right. We do this even today. Even sometimes in churches we do this. Whether it's behind closed doors or in front of people, we will often say things or even imply certain things like, well, the way that we do church is the best way to do church. My tradition is the way that you really experience God. I mean, like, I love what y'all are doing, and that's cute. That's cute. You guys are cute. But like, if you come over here, woo, you're going to grow in faith. You're going to experience the goodness. You're going you're gonna to get his favor. Like we, and we don't say it like that. I mean, not unless you're like really weird, but like, but like we make these implications. Even what Paul is saying here is there's political implications. I believe wholeheartedly, as we would see would be consistent throughout the New Testament, that Paul would also say our political identity in one sense also cannot separate us from being one in Christ. And we do that so often, don't we? Man, I, I, you know, I heard that like they voted for and that like they believe and the legislation that they wish would get passed, bro, yeah, there's no way they love Jesus. They must not even know Jesus because my Jesus would never, which is such a weird thing to say, by the way, my God would never, what God are you serving? We all have the exact same God. And yet Paul is saying, look, our cultural barriers, they often divide us, but they're not, when leaning into the gospel, 
The gospel divides these cultural barriers, builds a healthy, multi-ethnic family. He goes on and he says, the gospel divides the social barriers in our life that people should not associate as we do so often in the world according to our class. That the poor or the modestly paid worker should not be made to feel inferior in any way. In different side of the exact same coin, the well-off must not be resented or looked at with disdain because they make more. They should not be seen as, well, you should sacrifice more. No, we all ought to sacrifice the same as we follow Jesus together. We're in this thing together. And the gospel tears down those walls of division. In fact, what we see Paul emphatically declaring is that we have a whole lot more in common than we have that makes us different. And Paul is telling us here in one verse that we need to allow the gospel and allow our minds to be transformed by the renewing of God's word and leaning into the truth that we are now all one in Christ Jesus. Then the third barrier that Paul is addressing is the gender barrier. Without question, this was the strongest barrier of Paul's day because women, as we mentioned a moment ago, were considered inferior to men. Even today, this is still a bit controversial within within the kind of the capital C church. But because women are equal in Christ before God, they must be seen as equally gifted and able as men as well. In modern psychology, it teaches that each of us carry multiple identities. For instance, um, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a pastor, I'm a male, I'm an American, I'm middle class, I'm white, I don't know if you could tell. All of these are ways in which we identify ourselves, And we all do it. And yet what Paul is telling us here is that these are all secondary identities. Now here's where modern psychology and the scriptures differ just a bit. They both agree that we carry with us certain identities. What the scripture teaches is that psychology, in my opinion, gets significantly off on is that those are secondary identities to our primary identity as followers of Christ. More specifically, let's look once again at Galatians chapter three where Paul writes, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You're all now one in Christ Jesus. In essence, what Paul is telling us, he doesn't erase our secondary identities, he engraces them. So I'm still, I'm, I'm still a male, I'm, I'm still an American, I'm still middle class, I'm still a husband, I'm still a pastor, I'm still a, a dad. He doesn't erase it. I still have the exact same Enneagram number, three, wing seven. Come on, somebody, any threes in here? Here we go. Myers-Briggs, it's also the same. Strengths Finder, also the same. Those are things that make me unique. However, when I come in Christ, when I say yes to Jesus, all of us together have to now nail these identities to the cross. I'm no longer first and primarily those things. I am first and primarily a follower of Jesus in Christ. Now, those identities, I do not view my life through the lens of those identities. I first view my life through the lens of being in Christ. I make my decisions as a result of being in Christ. I want to joyfully live in obedience with gratitude to God because I'm in Christ, because of what he's done for me. My secondary identities are secondary. If they're not in alignment with God, then I set them aside. They stay nailed to the cross. In fact, sometimes we can even make excuses for ourselves. It's like the sad side of the personality profile is like, well, that's because I'm a seven. You're like, I don't know if that makes you, gives you an excuse to be rude. 
And that's what we do. And what Paul is saying on a much deeper, much more profound level is that we need to view ourselves and each other through the lens that we are all one together in Christ. This is how the gospel creates unity. This is how the gospel builds a healthy, multi-ethnic family. And so we have to ask ourselves then, how can I look down on someone who is also in Christ? And why would I be jealous of anyone else when I am a son of God? See, it's really common to think of our salvation only in terms of being forgiven of our sin. And historically, that's sort of what we do in Christian circles. We, we relegate salvation simply to God's mercy. And yet salvation is also, it's twofold. It's also an adoption of us by God into his family. In fact, it's the adoption of God, of his children, of his sons and daughters, that may just be the most radical thing that God has done for us. And it may just be the thing that changes the way in which we live our lives in response to God more than anything else. In Galatians chapter four, we're gonna kind of wrap this up by understanding what Paul is saying here. In verse four through six, he writes, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Key phrase there, adopt us. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us, something in us wants to identify with this. Whether we've understood this language historically or not, intrinsically, there is something in all of us who says, I want this right here. The spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. Everybody say Abba. Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now, calling God Abba in our modern English could easily be translated as the term daddy. However, this is also a whole lot more than just kind of child's language. This would have been the most intimate language of a family in the Jewish world. Now, mind you, the context of the scripture, because we got to do our due diligence. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And so to contextualize this, we must understand that this term, Abba, would have been one of the earliest words that a young Jewish child would have learned, in addition to the word Ima. Ima means mommy. Abba means daddy. So while translating this term, daddy, is fully accurate, there's a whole lot more to it than just the cry of a young child for his father. In fact, calling God Abba in Judaism was also the commanding authority figure of the Jewish family. So when you said Abba, you were simultaneously as a child saying, you're my dad, and in the exact same breath, you were taught to never disagree with and always to honor the Abba of the family. In other words, it's a term that Jews used for their relationship to their fathers that involved both relational intimacy and honorable respect. In fact, that phrase, honorable respect, for some of you who have maybe read through the Proverbs and the Psalms and in several places in the New Testament and been confused by what is the fear of the Lord or what does it mean to fear God? That's it right there. It's not being afraid of, it's having an honorable respect for God. And in essence, what Paul is saying here is that God desires that we desire him. And so he says, I've given you my spirit and my spirit is prompting you saying, I know you're a whole lot more 
than just some austere, off-in-the-distance God that's stuck behind stained glass windows. That there's an intimacy that God desires with you. In fact, Paul begins to explain it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. He says, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, that makes you afraid of God, that you, you're not just somebody who is law-obeying and law-relying. That's specifically what Paul is saying. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, as a result, we can cry out to him. We can call him Abba, Father, Paul tells us that when we say yes to Jesus, we become children of God and somehow, and you gotta grab this right here, somehow mysteriously, and I'm, I'm just, I'm praying that we grab the mystery of this right here. God's spirit comes in you and the spirit of God whispers to you. If you slow down long enough and you pause often enough, you begin to sense God's spirit. I love you. I've adopted you. You are mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm pleased with you. I've forgiven you. Too often we live our lives so rushed. One of the greatest hindrances to experiencing the voice of God. Ooh, that was perfect timing, wow. Made me sound unbelievably spiritual right there. I didn't even hear you come up. You were like a ghost. Good job, Colton. <laughs> One of the greatest hindrances to hearing and experiencing those prompts, those subtle impressions of the Spirit of God is just busyness, just hurry. Again, that's why that first 15 minutes of our day, we just slow down, just 15 minutes. We just breathe. As we've mentioned in our Thought Life series, what you think about now determines what you think about next. What you think about determines what you do. So we just pause and we sit and we reflect and we begin to hear those subtle impressions, that subtle voice of God, that small, gentle whisper. It's God just affirming his love for you. And when Paul tells us that we should use this term, Abba, he literally is saying, he's like, use that. Use that term. In your own time of prayer, when you're just praying and just kind of communing and relating with God, he's saying, come to him and use that term because it renews your mind. He's asserting that we can approach God as if we were as beautiful and heroic and faithful as Jesus himself. And so just as Jesus is God's son, we are adopted as sons and daughters too. Now, some of you are familiar with adoption. Some of you have actually walked through the process of adoption. We have several families in our church who have done that, several families in our church who choose willingly and regularly to foster kiddos as well. And what's interesting, though, is that these families know something that we, that many of us, don't often know. And it's the reality that adoption is never a measure of lesser love. Adoption is actually an act of what I would argue is even more radical love. It's a deep love. It's an I choose you kind of love. It's a love that was chosen, a folding into the family kind of love. I choose to adopt you in all of your mess. One of the more beautiful stories and experiences that I get the privilege of, of hearing is families who foster kiddos who, I mean, they're exhausted. These families are so tired. So they often foster these kids and bring them into their homes and, and they come from difficult backgrounds and behaviors are more challenging. 
And I just often remind them, what you are doing is the most radical act of love that anybody can do. And what you are doing is exactly what God did for us. He said, oh, no, no, I, I choose to adopt you. With your mess, with your background, with all of the crap that you bring with you, I choose to adopt you. When my daughter was really young, I started to do something that I've kind of carried on the tradition with my, with my son. I would tell Sophia, she's 14 now, I'd say, hey, Sophia, who's my princess? She'd be like, me, Dad. How much do I love her? This much, Dad. Always and forever? Yep. She started to get a little bit older, and I realized I never chose Sophia. God chose her for me, and I love the reality of that and the beauty of that, but I needed her to know something else. I started adding kind of a fourth tag onto this tradition. I said, hey, Soph, if I lined up every little girl in the whole, in the whole world, and I could choose one to be my daughter, who would I choose? And without question, I didn't know how she would respond, without question, she's like, me, Dad. That's right. I didn't choose you, but I would choose you. And yet for us, what God says, I did choose you. And so radical love that he pours on us at his spirit, the gift of his Holy Spirit is continually trying to convey to us if we slow down long enough to experience it. Now, as we begin to close, I want you to understand something. The work of God's spirit is done internally to us. And it consists in us being completely moved both intellectually and emotionally. If you've been coming here for any length of time, you've probably heard us say something like this. I pray that we would be a church that wrestles well with the scriptures. That we a church that doesn't dismiss social science, but uses it. That we view social science through the lens of the scriptures, not vice versa. At the same time, I also pray that we be a church that just experiences the person of the Spirit of God too. That we don't relegate him simply to an intellectual science. That we say, no, I want to experience your love too. So the person of Jesus, the person of his Spirit, the person of God, our Heavenly Father, the Trinity of God is to be experienced both intellectually and emotionally. In fact, the intellectual side of what Paul is saying all throughout the New Testament is he uses terms and he unpacks these terms. Terms like salvation, justification, propitiation, reconciliation, all of these different Asians of which many of us read them and we're like, I don't really know what that's talking about right here. But then Paul also very simply uses terms that we are familiar with. And he is essentially just saying that what took place is that God adopted you as his child. So we intellectually, we wrestle with it. We want to understand it. But then emotionally, we just say, I want to experience this. And as a result, that's what causes us to slow down and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us, to whisper to us. And as I mentioned, the greatest gift that God ever gave you was the gift of his Holy Spirit. In other words, 
you are no longer your own now. When you said yes to Jesus, you become a child of God and what marks you is his Holy Spirit. Now just side note for some of us who kind of geek out on some of this stuff in the Old Testament, what marked a Jewish boy who was committing his life to become a follower of God, so to speak, was circumcision. In the New Testament, we could say that internally what marks us is our love for one another. Jesus said in John 13, that it's your love that will reveal that you really are my followers. But also internally, what marks you, what seals you, what God and what Paul actually says imprints you is his spirit. He gives you his spirit. And we got to kind of just let the mystery of that kind of settle within us. And here's what Paul says in Romans 8, 14. He says, for you, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. You can also say the exact same way to mean the exact same thing. That for all who are children of God are led by the spirit of God. Now, Scott McKnight, as he's commenting on this particular chapter, Romans chapter 8, he says, legalists are led by the law, hedonists led by their desires, materialists led by their possessions, but sons of God, Christians, are led by the Spirit. What prompts their actions, what stirs their emotions, what guides their behavior, and what determines their careers is God's spirit. Furthermore, sons of God do not fear and worry where the spirit will lead them. They know that God's spirit will lead them perfectly into God's will and God's blessing, so they march behind confidently and joyously. That's the gift of God's spirit. That as his children, you no longer have to journey through life on your own. That you now have the same spirit as Paul said in Romans 8, verse 11, just a few verses prior to what we read a moment ago. You now have the same spirit living in you that raised Christ from the dead. So the same spirit that empowered Jesus to rise from the grave is the same spirit that empowers you to break the bondage of sin, to be led by his spirit so you can experience the fullness of freedom that's available to you and me so we no longer have to carry the shame so that we can now live guilt-free but also live in confident obedience and grateful joy in response to all that God has done. Not law, law obeying and law relying, but law obeying. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Not so we can be made right with him, but because we've already been made right with him. So what would it look like, Ethos, if the church today, what would it look like if we began to grasp the reality of this and lived from this place of confident sonship. That's the work of the gospel. That's how the gospel creates you. That's how the gospel builds a healthy, multi-ethnic family united with Jesus together.